Welcome to the new school. What we wanted to do was talk about the concept of authenticity and vulnerability in an industry that has typically been super buttoned up, super professional, and a little bit old school. Hello, and welcome to episode number 22 of the New School Video Podcast. It's me, Candice Carlton, Head of Advisor Education at Bicom Partners, and I'm joined by our CEO, Meg Carpenter. In this episode, we got to speak to Kara Murphy, who's the Chief Investment Officer of Kestra Investment Management, although you may have seen her in one of her many media appearances across the spectrum, including Bloomberg Markets. Kara and her team provide hands-on support, including market commentary, research, guidance on portfolio construction, and a broad array of investment solutions to empower financial advisors to serve their clients' wealth management needs. In this episode, she talks about what she's building at Kestra Investment Management and why she thinks it's important to have a diverse investment management team. She also gives us some insight on gender-based investing and how she's been able to find her authentic voice as a female leader in a predominantly male-dominated industry, especially as a chief investment officer. I think you're going to really like it. You're going to love her. Let's get started. Hi, everyone, and welcome. We are so excited to have Kara Murphy, who is the Chief Investment Officer of Kestra Investment Management. Kara, welcome to the New School Video Podcast. Thank you. So great to be here. So we had a little bit of overlap when we were at United Capital. You were the Chief yeah. Investment Officer there. Then you were part of the Goldman Sachs acquisition. Yeah. And now you're at Kestra Investment Management. And when we were doing research for you as a guest to come on, I saw you on Bloomberg and you have your own show now. And I see you kind of like really like having a lot of exposure and influence talking all things investments. What has that been like uh, most recently with all the market fluctuations? And more specifically, in those conversations that you're having, what do you feel are things that you're not being asked that you'd like to be asked? Yeah, it's a great perspective. And, and, and I always joke that the more volatile markets are and the more markets are going down, the more calls I get. <laughs> Right? Like those are the times when people really want to know, like, where's the market going tomorrow? What do I need to do? What are the headlines going to be? Um, and I think a lot of times we become so focused on, you know, what what tomorrow brings and needing to understand the very, very near term that it's difficult. It, it's easy to lose perspective on the long term. Um, and there are um, it's so easy to kind of get lost in that day to day movement. And we lose sight of the fact that. You know, when you're investing in a stock, you really should be investing for a 10 year period. You know, these are very long term plays where we shouldn't worry too much about what happens next week, next month, even next year. And taking that long term focus allows you to actually improve your returns. There's a lot of, you know, behavioral finance work to show that the longer the term, the longer term perspective actually helps us have better returns over time. 
And these days, I mean, it's great in that you can make trades on your phone, you can access your portfolio, you can do it for free. You know, I call this a democratization of investments, which is great. And I love to see people really involved. But sometimes we're also encouraging them to over trade or think too short term. Um, and so I think that can get lost a lot of times in this day to day, this day to day headline driven movement. Do you think that the media is ever going to be sort of open to a different narrative or a different headline? I'd love for them to be, and I'd love to be part of that. <laughs> I have in my head these like really interesting shows that we could have where we talk, like really dive into individual topics, right? That are, that are really meaty and challenging. Um, but it's very tempting to kind of get get pulled into that day to day headline. And do you love doing that type of, you know, spokesperson work and being on camera and talking to reporters? Like, do you get nervous? How do you prep for it? What does it feel like? I do enjoy it. I, I enjoy it very much, but I always get nervous right beforehand. And then I feel great afterwards, like once it's done. Um, and, and what I really love about it. So, I mean, I love the markets, right? And, and, and it, it's like this ever-changing puzzle that you have to put together. And so I, I love that intellectual challenge and I love the dynamism of it. And so being able to have this like live Q&A just sort of like takes it up a notch where you're having to really think on your feet. And I also spend a lot of time talking with advisors. And so, you know, I'll present a view of what I think is happening in the market. Um, but my favorite is always the Q&A because I love to hear what's top of mind for people. And then again, like force myself to like really think, take in new information. Um, so it is really exciting, um, but it, it takes a lot out of me sometimes too. <laughs> sure. Kara, I think what's so interesting about you um, is you have you obviously have these really high power investment jobs, and more recently, I know you're building at Kestra. I'd love to hear like a little bit about what you're doing and how you're thinking about that. And then, as the second part of that, what is it like? What has been your experience of being a female CIO in an environment where that is very uncommon? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so, so I'll, I'll tackle the first question first, which is what the heck are we doing here at Kester Investment Management? Um, and so it, it's a lot. It's a lot of an extension of what I've spent my career doing. Um, the difference is that here within Kestra, up until six months ago when I joined, we didn't have a chief investment officer or even an investment department. So previously, when advisors had a particular question about the market or needed help building a client portfolio, there wasn't anybody on the other end of the line. So, so my, myself and, and now I actually have a team, which is wonderful. Uh, we've been able to think about, okay, how can we best help advisors? And we can't do everything day one. So we spent a lot of time going out to the advisors that we serve and saying, okay, where do you most need help? And that's where we're really going to focus our initial efforts and then we'll build over time. So it's been really fun to sort of like take what I love doing. You know, we talked about the dynamism of the market and the puzzle and the challenge and think about, okay, if I'm spending my day doing this, how can I relieve advisors' burdens, right? And make their days a little bit easier and help them communicate with their clients. So that's been an awful lot of fun and we'll continue to build over time. This will you know, take a few years to really get um, fully up and running, but I'm confident that there's a, there's a lot that we can deliver very near term to advisors, both in the terms of research and commentary, model strategies, and then a team of people to help actually put client portfolios together. So th that's been an awful lot of fun. Um, and, and then to your second question, in terms of, of being a woman in this role, 
you know, it's interesting. So I, I started in this business over 20 years ago. And at that time, about 9% of portfolio managers were women. Roll forward 20 plus years and guess how many women portfolio managers? 9%. <laughs> no, no, it's incredible. You know, we see all of these other industries where women have made really great strides, you know, in like law and medicine, women now make up more than a third of MDs and lawyers. Um, but the investment industry has been very, very slow to change. And, and in fact, in some ways, like really hasn't. So, um, and, and for a while in my career, I would take notes just out of curiosity. Every meeting I would go into, I would count the women who were in there. And it was, it was, it was very consistent, like around that 10%. Um, and so that really hasn't changed at all. And now that I'm more senior in my role, there are even fewer women. Um, and so I, I've kind of gotten used to not having a whole lot of women around me. Um, and But when there are women, I have taken more time to really cultivate those relationships because it is a unique experience. And it is every now and again, nice to be around other women, right? And, and, and really learn from their experiences. So, you know, I, I try not to let it slow me down at all. Um, but it is, you know, you're always standing out from, from everybody else who's in the room. I would like to go back. It was struck me while you were talking about what you're building at Kestra Investment Management and sort of the evolution of the industry. And, and you have sort of over 30 years now of the pioneers of the registered investment advisory community, you know, the founders who struck out on their own back in the mm -hmm. late 80s and early 90s to start their RIAs. And one of the reasons was because they wanted to have more ownership and control over investment policies, practices, processes, and decisions on behalf of their clients. And so that's really where I feel like, you know, the RIA community, which has continued to grow in manpower, um, literally manpower, because yeah. <laughs> female advisors, um, but also assets under management. But you've also got this, like, where I think most of the advisors still sit today are in the independent broker-dealer community, which is mm -hmm. what I would categorize Kestra as. Is that an accurate categorization? I mean, I would say what, what you're seeing is like a blurring of all of those lines, right? Yeah. Everybody's sort of grouping under this wealth management umbrella. And then you have a little bit, you have people who are like a little bit more tilted towards the independent broker dealer or other, others who are like completely independent RIAs. But, but what we're seeing is that there are not going to be very defined silos going forward. That's what exactly what I was going to ask you, Kara, is that, is that what you're seeing? And also like that has to have been a decision of yours in going to Kestra that like you believe that that's where the industry is going. And then Kestra was also making the conscious decision to say, we didn't have this before, but we recognize that it's what our advisors need and want, even if they're not pure independent RAs, even if they're sitting in this IBD model, they still need this additional layer of value added services as far as it relates to how we're helping their them invest on behalf of their clients. So I mean, was mm -hmm. that sort of like a conscious decision that both parties made in, in building out Kestra Investment Management? Yeah, definitely. And, and, you know, I'll go back even a little bit farther. I spent a, a large portion of my career on the asset management side. So, you know, I was a stock picker for a long time, investment strategist, portfolio manager. Um, and, and again, I loved that. But it was very clear that that part of the business was under a lot of pressure, both in terms of fees, um, again, like headcount, all of that. And, and part of it is because 
there were fewer and fewer opportunities to provide active management, right? Like um, a large portion of asset management was becoming more commoditized, right? Today you can get an S&P 500 ETF for a couple basis points, whereas 20 years ago, you just didn't have those same things, right? So everybody's having to develop. And when I looked at the opportunities in asset management versus wealth management, I felt like there was a lot more opportunity within wealth management. And, and then as you point out there, there's this question of like pure RIA versus independent broker dealer. Um, and a lot of RIAs really pride themselves on the I, right? The independent part of it. Um, and I really respect that. But again, if you think about what's happened in the asset management industry with more and more pieces being commoditized and having a lot more access today, the same is true in the wealth management space. So there are a lot of tools that advisors use and provide to their clients that are that can be delivered at scale much more easily than they could 20, 30 years ago. And, and a sort of like standard market portfolio is one of them. And there are a lot of different sort of degrees of client portfolios that we can deliver at scale at very, very low cost that you couldn't 20 years ago. And you can have very high quality, you know, risk and portfolio analytics and all of that um, and be able to deliver tens of thousands of client portfolios in a way. And, and you could do that like across multiple different firms. Whereas, you know, for an independent advisor, it's very difficult to have that same level of resources in a client portfolio. So, you know, back to thinking about what Kestra investment management can do within the Kestra holdings, um, we think that we can take that scale and be able to deliver it. And then those independent advisors can then still be independent in how they interact with their clients and what tools they choose to use, but they're really freeing up their time then in, in ways that they can truly add value. I mean, it's kind of weird. We work with advisors all day long, but I do miss the investment department updates that you get. <laughs> It's fun, right? <laughs> it's so fun because I think it's always, you know, a reaction to consumer sentiment and what's going on in the world. And so, um, you know, we hadn't prepared this in our conversation, but I'd be curious from your lens, because it's something that we think about all the time, is as you see consumer expectations, behaviors changing, markets uh, reacting to that, is there, do you have any sense of how you think that plays into how clients want to be communicated with by their advisors or their investment yeah. professionals? Yeah, this is actually something that we think a lot about um, because I, you know, I, I mentioned earlier, I really like this part of the job. I enjoy talking with advisors. I enjoy talking with clients. Um, and some of the consistent feedback that we get is that, uh, and, and this is where I think the investment industry really needs to sort of like dig deep and think about how they can provide more value. Um, I, I think from the investment perspective, a lot of times less is more. So, you know, you have, you have investment geeks like me, right, who spend their days, you know, looking at Bloomberg charts and following every tick and turn in the market. And we want to go deep. We want to tell you every single reason why we think the market is going to do X or Y and then tell you the, the risks to that scenario and then bring you back to what we think. And clients are like, just give me a sense of what's going on. You know, talk to me in plain person language and give me the highlights. And so I, I think a lot of what we really think about is, OK, we do all that work underneath the hood, but we don't need to share all of the cooking. Right. Our clients don't necessarily need to see how these sausages are made. So we need to be able to deliver it in a way that like I always think about my, my mom, like we need to deliver it in a way that my mom can digest it 
and feel like at the end, she's like, oh, I understand that better. So we really try to take like that last mile and make sure that whatever we're saying is very understandable and digestible and in plain person language. And then do you help, do your advisors have the ability to sort of take some of the content that you're creating and use it, but in their own way, like so that they can sort of put their own spin on it and, and relate it to their clients in the way that they know how to relate it to their clients? Yeah. And I th this goes back to what we were talking about earlier, where advisors are going to know their clients the best. We want to give them the tool set so that they can pick and choose what they need because they're going to know, like they're going to have certain clients who want like all the detail and other clients who just want the highlights. So I'll, I'll give an example. Like I write a blog every other week. I'll pick a topic and try to give like a, a viewpoint and a bunch of data. And I try to link out to original pieces of data. So if you want to dive into like the GDP report or the unemployment report some more or, you know, earnings trends, I'll give you public data that you can access and you can look at yourself, pull out charts, whatever you might whatever you might want to use. But advisors, I find, will use that to then, you know, write their own reports or do their own research. And so we want advisors to be able to engage with whatever we create on multiple different levels and be able to use it however it works for their particular business. Because I think just the reality is something we fundamentally believe is like we like people don't respond to cookie cutter communications anymore. Yeah, sure. Right. Even if it's curated and a narrative is put on it, that is more like digestible to use like your own mm -hmm. words. It's more human and personalized. Kara, I love, um, you know, when we've been talking, you had we talked about building your team from the ground up and what an exciting opportunity that is. We've also touched on how, you know, when you started your career, 9% of portfolio managers were women, 9% are still, it's around that number still. As you think about building this investment team and platform for all of the advisors, and you think about that percentage, but you also think about the future, and then obviously we have a big move right now for diversity and inclusion. How do you think about that and, and how do you approach building an investment team from the ground up? Yeah. So, you know, I, I, as you suggested, I've, I've had to put all of these beliefs into practice as I've been building this team out from scratch. And, and I've been fortunate to have had the experience of building a couple of teams at other points in my career as well. Um, and, and, you know, since even before, you know, we had this term DEI or diversity and inclusion, um, it's always been really important to me to have a very diverse team. And that goes, to, and that's not just gender, that, that's diverse from educational perspectives, ethnic backgrounds, geography. It's very, very important in investing that you have an environment where people are coming with different perspectives. You also have to create an environment where people feel comfortable challenging each other and where people feel comfortable admitting mistakes and changing their minds. And I almost feel like, like given the political climate today, that's only become harder rather than easier. So number one, you have like, you know, anytime I go out with um, hiring a new role, I ensure that we have um, multiple diverse types of candidates. And again, there are multiple there, there are different ways that you can check that diversity box. But we always make sure that we have a, a varied representation of candidates when they come in the door to interview, but then let the best person win, right? Like that diversity card is never gonna sort of chose us to hire a best the, a, a particular person. We're always gonna go for the best person for the role. Um, but then like the job's not done there. Once you have a diverse set of people, then you need to sort of prioritize 
retaining that diversity and, and making sure that people are comfortable bringing up an issue and asking questions. Um, and that takes daily cultivation, right? That doesn't like live by itself. Um, and, and I try to be very conscious of that. And I think we've created a really great environment because of it. And I've had the great fortune to be able to work with people in a number of different you know, roles. And so I think we've been able to create, create a great team sensitivity because of that. Um, but it definitely takes a lot of work, but it's really, really important. And I think you were telling us earlier before we hopped on this uh, podcast recording that there's actually, I mean, there's proof that having divert a diverse table, you know, a diverse investment management table actually provides better outcomes, right? For sure. And we've seen that in multiple different ways. So, you know, if you look at just diverse teams, for instance, on a, on a board perspective, boards that have uh, more diverse representation or executive teams that are more diverse actually have less earnings volatility, less stock price volatility, better returns on equity over time. So on a corporate level, there's a lot of evidence to show that diversity really helps. Then when you look at a group level, um, there's also a lot of evidence to suggest that diverse teams actually make better decisions over time. Now, what's interesting about that is that diverse teams are harder to manage. There's more conflict initially, right? Because everybody is not like they don't they don't sort of have all the same sensibility, but it's that conflict that actually leads to the better decision making. So these teams tend to be harder to manage in the short term, but you have better long term outcomes. So isn't that better for everybody? That's so interesting, because as I think about how we're building our team here at FICOM, obviously, diversity is incredibly important. And and there are so many ways to do it, but I mm -hmm. um, I'm really sort of interested in your point about challenge and different perspectives and conflicts, because you're right, that really is sort of where the magic happens, because you're mm -hmm. able to have honest, open conversations that are built on a foundation of trust and respect, yeah. right? Yeah. But recognizing that it's okay. It's okay for us to have these different opinions. And if we can have that respect and that trust, we can listen, hear each other out you know, it makes like if you, when you see it in action, it's like, ah, oh, yes, that outcome is so much better. Mm -hmm. But it is hard to do. Um, and I feel like it's also quite hard to do in an industry that has traditionally been quite closed door minded mm -hmm. to the potential for greater outcomes. Kara, you shared such a beautiful story. We're talking about, you know, having diverse thinking, diverse people on a team. And I think even as you have gone through your career journey, you shared with me a story because I said to you, what's it like being a female CIO? You know, what's a, when were you able to like fully step in and own that? And what did it look like? And, you know, mm -hmm. we've talked to our guests, like for example, Danny Fava, head of strategic development in Bestnet about she wears, you know, the biggie t-shirts like on conference calls and, you know, her journey to owning and being energy content on our podcast also we're owning our fashion in you yeah. know what has been like a kind of very you know there's a uniform your blue shirt like in financial services yeah when I asked you about that yours was less about fashion and you had a story about flowers I'd love for you to kind of like share that of like stepping into your 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 like authentic self and one symbol of that for you. Yeah, it's so interesting you remember that. So, you know, I, I mentioned I, I started in this career when there were very few women, right? So I was used to not being around women. And I started at, at Morgan Stanley, right? So a very buttoned up culture. 
And for many years, I was a financials analyst. So I was a stock analyst covering the financial sector, which tended to be particularly male dominated. So, you know, I would show up at conferences in my black suit, just like all the guys with my hair in a bun, no makeup. You know, I was just trying to blend in. I didn't want to stand out at all. And so I spent like a good portion of my career and very formative years trying to not stand out, like no red lipstick. <laughs> and then, um, you know, I remember when I, uh, when I got the role of chief investment officer for the first time at AIG and I was moving into my new office and I had an office with a window. So that was very exciting. And I had this great view of the Hudson river. Um, and I remember debating, uh, I wanted to put some flowers on my desk across from my computer. And I remember debating, like, I don't know, that seems so feminine. People are going to look in, they're going to be like, who is this? And I was finally like, screw it. I'm getting the flowers. <laughs> so I did. I wish I had them. I have them at home. I, I, it's still, it's like, like a little fake pot with an orchid in it. Um, but, uh, but so I still have that. And, and that, that was me like coming into myself a little bit more and being more myself. And it sounds so silly in retrospect, right? Because it wasn't a big deal. But I, up until then, I had spent like 13 years, like, trying to pretend like I wasn't really a woman. <laughs> but, that, and, and, but that's why it is a big deal. You know, like it's easy to look in hindsight and say, oh, it wasn't a big deal. It was just flowers, but it wasn't just the flowers. I mean, it was however many years leading up to that where you yeah. felt like you had to show up in a different way just to be respected. Yeah. And yeah, then, for sure. And, and, and with that, I think, you kind of you start to throw off the shackles a little bit um and i and i just felt like i was a little bit more me i'm also like i like to be goofy i like to joke around i like to be personal and and i felt like i could be more that as a leader and and i also found that people gravitate towards that they want to feel like they really know you um and 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 i think our team all became closer because i was more me absolutely i mean you open up a space for people to be more comfortable in their own skin when sure. you as a leader and a guide and a mentor are comfortable in your own skin. And it's just, you know, I've heard and experienced myself so many similar stories and I always just think like, oh, what a shame. You know, I know, shame. right? Yeah. If you weren't in an environment from when our early twenties, where we felt like we had to show up, not, you know, try to be more like the men. Like I remember trying to talk about college football oh, and yeah golf, like, <laughs> totally. there's things that are in my periphery, right? Like my dad golfs every day. I grew up on a golf course, so I can talk golf. And yes. my husband is a big baseball fan. I went to USC, great fo college football program. But like, man, I don't talk about that in my everyday <laughs> life. Like, I don't really give a shit about college football, right. you know? So, but like, but that's how I felt. I felt like I had to show up in a room, like ready with a few other things. Like, oh, did you see who won the U.S. Open this weekend? Yeah. yeah. You know, and it's like, I don't do that anymore. And I just always, I listening to your story, just made me ask myself the same question. Like, what if we mm -hmm. didn't have to? And hopefully we are all working together to create an environment where now today, when a 20 something year old woman or someone who's part of the queer community or whatever comes into financial services, I just hope that we're building an environment where they can feel marginally more comfortable just being themselves from the beginning. Because think about how amazing it will be if we can just keep in that direction. It's true. But, but I think we also need to remember that it takes work every day. Right. right? This isn't just a decision like I'm going to be open and inclusive. Poof, it happens. 
you have to like constantly check your own biases, right? I have, I have biases, you have biases. It's like Absolutely. part of being human. And so you have, and you have to like constantly work and sort of think about, okay, how can I be more inclusive? How can I invite other people's opinions? Um, and, and like I said, it's more a cultivation, um, constant working and sort of thinking and challenging yourself. And again, I think it really pays off. Um, but but it, it you really have to push yourself in order to be able to encourage other people to feel comfortable. Well, I feel like, you know, this is why I love the work that we get to now do, because I feel like the world of personal development has come into business, right? Mm -hmm. and, yeah. and the truth is you can't demonstrate, you can't show, you can't teach, you can't even really talk about anything unless you've experienced it firsthand, mm -hmm. if you want it to resonate, right? Mm -hmm. So I think it's really just all a journey about self and like getting to know yourself really better. And then I feel like, I know this is, you know, but through my journey of life, I feel like the older I get, the more you realize like life goes up and down and life is tough yeah. sometimes. And so yeah. you start to develop a level of compassion and acceptance and things are not black and white so much. Mm -hmm. So I think that opens up the space for more ideation, more innovation, better solutions, I think more connection with people. Mm -hmm. So I think it's just a beautiful like circle, but I digress slightly. Um, Kara, I just had one thing that I just wanted you to do a quick thing and talk to because it's a subject so close to my heart. It's like, for years, we've gone to conferences and they've been talking about women in wealth and women are investing and how to talk to female clients. And I was always just like a, like really sad by those those talks because I think the intention was good, but it, it right. kind of missed the mark in terms of when, and you had a very interesting perspective-based research for uh, female investors. Yeah, this is a subject I, I became very fascinated with, like early on in my career. And and so it, it all if I could take us way back for just a moment, like you go back to the 1990s and there were two professors who were the first ones to actually do work on gender and investing. They were able to get access to a whole bunch of live um, client accounts and be able to parse it apart by different demographic issues. So like age, single, married, um, uh, women versus men. And what they found was that women's portfolios consistently outperformed their male counterparts. Wow, like what? Totally counter to conventional wisdom. Um, and, and, you know, you ask, you know, we've become more sort of cognizant of our gender biases and stuff today, but, you know, not long ago, you would ask nearly any sort of very accomplished portfolio manager and they'd be like, oh, well, this world is really more suited towards men, right? It, it was just accepted. But then here we've had this data for a couple of decades that actually show that women's portfolios perform better than men's, right? So, so that alone is very interesting to me, where you have data that goes against conventional wisdom. But the more important question is why? So why do women's portfolios outperform men? It really comes down to a couple of different behavioral biases. Um, a big one is patience. So it goes back to what we were talking about a little bit earlier, where this ability to look more towards the long term, sort of take yourself out of like the day-to-day -day volatility 
actually leads to better returns over time. And so women have a tendency to look more towards the long term, to not check their portfolios every day. Um, and, and, and we see the benefits of that over time. Um, and a corollary to that is women tend to trade less often. So men tend to buy and sell stocks much more on a daily basis relative to women, um, and they tend to sell the winners and buy the losers, which is not good for your portfolio. Um, women actually don't have better track record. They don't have a better hit ratio when it comes to choosing good performing stocks. They just do it less often. So being able to hang on to whatever you own actually is going to do better for your portfolio over time. And then the third thing I'll mention that tends to benefit women's portfolios over time is just um, a more enhanced understanding of risk. The ability to understand risk and how it's impacting your portfolio. And with that, women actually tend to be less emotional when it comes to making investment decisions. Again, I know very counter to conventional wisdom, which is part of the reason I find it so interesting. Um, but women tend to be able to sort of keep their head a little bit in these um, very volatile times and their portfolios benefit as a result. I'm so curious to know, and I'm, I am watching the time, so I know, Candice, you can wrap this up after this question, but like, where did your passion come from, Kara? I love getting to know you and your passion is so real and true. You really love this stuff. Like, I do. I'm such a geek. <laughs> it's so amazing. Though. Like, where did that come from? Have you always, like, did you just go to school knowing this is what you no. wanted to do? No, I, I grew up the daughter of two English teachers. So like at the dinner table when I was growing up, we would like quote poetry and act out plays and, and I'm still a reader. I love to read and write and whatnot. Um, but for, but I never thought I would be in finance like never totally happened by accident but me that's neither. what I love. What's that? she said me neither me too me, me neither, neither. <laughs> I, I know i know but that's why i love to go out and preach the gospel because there's so many women or other people who like don't see themselves in finance who might have great careers because of it but for me like i i love asking questions i love like digging deep i love like the puzzle we talked about and that's what the markets are all about so so it, it's just this like constantly changing very challenging type of environment where you get to find these interesting lessons and kind of put them all together so that's what i love about it i love that this has been such a fun conversation if you're listening you heard we've gone in a multitude of directions so i hope that you were able to follow along because it's been a lot of fun Kara, we always ask our guests two questions to close out, but the first is, what does the new school mean to you? Well, you hit on it earlier. For me, it's really, it's being able to show up as yourself. And there, there's a lot of focus these days on like authentic leadership and stuff. And it's almost become cliche, but, but for me, it, like I mentioned before, like the shackles coming off, like being able to just show up as me and have more meaningful, deeper relationships with the people I work with every day, it, just, it makes me feel more whole. And I think a lot more effective too. And then where can people find you? Where's the best place that you're hanging out online? Yeah, so Money with Murphy, that's my Twitter handle. I try to um, post regularly. I have a video uh, called Money with Murphy and I have a blog that gets published there. And then, you know, as new market data or interesting research comes up, I'll put it on there. You can also follow me on LinkedIn on Money with Murphy. Thank you so much for coming on. It was such a delight. Thank you guys. So great to chat. Bye.